Hello, bonjour, and tensez. I'm Senator Paula Simons, and this is Alberta Unbound. This past winter, when talk of creating a standalone Alberta pension plan was in the air, I convened a panel of five remarkable experts to ask them about the pros and cons of such a plan. My guests then were Trevor Toome, Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Calgary, Leo De Beaver, the former CEO of AIMCO, the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, which runs Alberta's existing public pension funds, Deborah Yedlin, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, Ricardo Acuna, Executive Director of the Parkland Institute, a progressive think tank based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, and Lindsay Tetz, a professor of economics at the University of Calgary, who focuses on the design and implementation of fiscal and tax policy. It was a great discussion and one that I think needs hearing again, now that Alberta Premier Danielle Smith has put plans for a new Alberta-only pension squarely on the table. This September 21st, the provincial government released an explosive report from a company called LifeWorks, their analysis of how to set up an Alberta pension plan. The report claims that Alberta is actually entitled to 118% of the current value of the CPP investment fund, but recommends that Alberta compromise by only insisting on withdrawing 53% of the fund's total value to kickstart its own system. Based on that somewhat creative math, the report estimates that creating an Alberta pension plan could save the highest earning Albertans about $1,400 a year in pension contributions. Based on the suppositions in this new report, the Smith government now wants Albertans to vote in a referendum on withdrawing from the CPP. So before we re-listen to our pension roundtable from this past winter, I've invited back two of our original guests, economists Lindsay Teds and Trevor Toome, for a quick few questions about the province's pension report. Trevor, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming back. Oh, thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, I am not an economist nor an actuary. I haven't done math since grade 12. So I'm calling on you. Can you please explain to me how LifeWorks, the private company that wrote this report, came up with the math that Albertans were owed 118% of the value of the CPP and that we should actually claim 53% given that we are only about 11% of the Canadian population. Yes, maybe I'll, I'll jump in here to kick things off. So the language in the Canada Pension Plan Act that governs how much of the CPP assets would be provided to a separating province that sets up its own comparable plan is unfortunately imprecise. There are lots of potential ways that one could read that legislation. And and interestingly, even back in 1965, when the act was passed, I can find three contradictory interpretations by both the federal government itself through its official white paper on the Canada Pension Plan, through ministers that were responsible, uh, and through critical provincial premiers who were instrumental in the negotiations to set it up. So the ambiguity around that part of the act has, has been there from the start. Uh, unfortunately, because now we're seeing that that ambiguity allows for uh, many, many different interpretations, some more reasonable than others. And and what LifeWorks essentially put forward is what they consider to be the literal interpretation of the act is to basically take every dollar that Albertans have contributed into the Canada Pension Plan 
and accumulate those in a hypothetical fund, earning returns being compounded over a half a century, and the magic of compound interest being what it is, turns that into an enormous number, and then after that, subtracting the expenditures from the plan. And that leads to the initial 100 plus, as you noted, percent of the the total assets of the plan. And then they say, well, that's clearly unreasonable. So why not go historically and take the contributions paid minus the benefits that were provided to Albertans year by year and compounding those differences over time? And that that delivers the 53%. And that's you know maybe uh, what Alberta would have had it never joined in the first place, but had a comparable plan from the start. And that is indeed one of the historical interpretations, but I think it does betray on the part of LifeWorks and certainly the government who's highlighting that number, uh, a lack of familiarity with the historical context. I mean, that, that approach to the formula made sense prior to our modern CPP, which is very, very different than what we had originally. Now we have a, a, a large fund very diversified. Uh, that was not not the case before where all the CPP assets were just provincial bonds. Very simple. And so now that, yeah, there's there's lots of ambiguity here. I think uh, my own analysis uh, also in a paper released last week is that uh, consider a more reasonable interpretation, something more consistent with the historical intentions of the, the architects of the act itself would lead to maybe 20%. I think the CPP board is saying 18%. So in, yeah, I in, think- in the same sort of neighborhood. On that, just the CPP number there is the 16%. I think they were kind of broadly misinterpreted in their public communications that day. They weren't saying they thought that the act would endow Alberta with 16% of the fund. They were just noting that Alberta was 16% of the contributions, which provides some useful context to evaluate whether 53% is uh, reasonable or not. So, so Lindsay, I mean, pulling 53% of the value of the CPP, which is about $334 billion, would surely put the pensions and retirements of other Canadians across the country at risk. How would or could Alberta pull out that amount? It won't. It can't. And it's not going to happen. The final determination is the Minister of Finance in Ottawa, right? So this isn't a negotiation. Uh, The authority rests with the Minister of Finance. And there is just no way anybody's going to buy this 53% argument. Like even even the analysis that Trevor just talked about that he did shows that it's not even in the realm of uh, understanding. So what unfortunately needs to actually happen in this province is for the government to, and it's not going to happen, so it's up to Trevor and I, to tell everybody that that number is not going to happen. And you cannot base a decision on that number because it's just, it's a unicorn, right? It, it doesn't exist. Well, this, sorry for everybody out there who <laughs> likes unicorns. It's just, it doesn't exist. It's not a reality and it's not going to happen. So if we're going to have this conversation, it should, in fact, be based off of numbers more like what Trevor is talking about. And then you have to really then understand that that leads to just a small reduction in premiums that we would pay. And that small reduction is based on some very, uh, that it could actually grow to be larger than what our current premiums are under certain changes in demographics. Right, because this is the question. Yeah, this is the question. I mean, the province is saying that we would save $5 billion, which is a big number, 
the life work says actually it's the top earners, like the people at the top of the income scale would save about $1,400 a year in pension contributions. The report is silent on what people who are not top earners would save. But that's based on kickstarting the fund with $334 billion. So, I mean, what kind of savings realistically might we see if say we take Trevor's 20%? That's a, that's a great question. So first on, on, the, on that $1,400, even that is an inappropriately communicated number. Like the, the LifeWorks, their analysis says, if you give us $334 billion to start, then the contribution rate in Alberta would be 5.9%. And then they compare that to the 9.9 that the Canada Pension Plan has. But interestingly, the Canada Pension Plan is so sustainable for the long haul that the minimum rate that it needs is not 9.9, it's 9.5. And that little bit of a difference here between 9.5 and the 5.9 that LifeWorks um, communicates shaves a chunk off of that 1,400. Now we're a little under 1,200 per year. Now that's just a, a quibble on on my part, but really just to reinforce the lack of seriousness with which the government is approaching its public communications on this file. But let's say it's a reasonable one, a 20% of, of assets are separated. Well, first, this wouldn't actually require Canada pension plan rates increase elsewhere, right? Because a separating province also takes with it obligations as well from the CPP. So there's a critical threshold for assets where CPP can continue as is, and 20% is under that threshold. And then in Alberta, the contribution rate would be 8.2, uh, which is less than 9.5 for sure. Uh, and that 1.5% off of the contribution rate would mean, you know, were it that number to be sustained, would mean that individual employees and employers would contribute less through their CPP contributions on the order of about $34 a month each, just for, just for context. 1400 versus 34, just so we're clear. Well, per month, so 400, $400. Oh, a month. Okay, so $400 a year. As you noted, there's, there's real risks here. And so $35 a month, let's think about two Netflix subscriptions, and that's the benefit. And then the the cost is real. It's increased risk exposure. A smaller plan has greater exposure to standard risks like you know mortality rates and fertility rates and investment returns. CPP is exposed to those too, but the separate Alberta plan would be more sensitive to those risks. So those risks matter more. And then there'd be the additional risks of interprovincial migration in the future not being as favorable to the province. So like two-thirds of our whole advantage on pensions in Alberta is because of this favorable net inflow. Were that to just become balanced, inflows equaling outflows over the long haul, then two-thirds of the advantage disappears. So the benefits are pretty modest. The risks are really real. And that's how we should be, uh, that's how Albertans should be thinking about this. It's certainly not a slam dunk. It is something that involves really important trade-offs to consider seriously. So in 1997, the Canada Pension Plan evolved away from its old-fashioned pay-as-you-go strategy, which meant that young workers were effectively paying the pensions of retirees, to adopt a new system designed to weather demographic change wherein the fund collected enough money to reinvest and remain self-sustaining. The LifeWorks report uh, suggests that one possible model for the Alberta Pension Plan would be to run on the old pay-as-you-go formula. So, so what are the pros and cons of that approach? The, the pay-as-you-go is, is what you said, right? I mean, the people who are working now are paying for the retirements of people who are retired, sorry, 
<laughs> and you know the, the the risk is actually to the people currently paying in to understand that you need a demographic coming after you that can then support your retirement. And one of the things that we do know about changing demographics is that there isn't a, a swath of kids <laughs> coming up behind us, right? Our fertility rates are, are very low. I think we're in the top, like somewhere in the top 15 of low fertility rates around the world. And, you know, it, it, immigration is going to, you know, help with growing the population, but not necessarily growing it in a way that can ensure the right bulk of people paying in to pay for our retirements, right? So the, it, it, it's very risky. It's, and, and it's really not how you fund a pension. It's how you fund a government benefit like guaranteed income supplement. It's not how you fund a pension plan. Now, I have to say, people have been sending me questions unprompted on social media, asking me to explain the logic of all this. So I wanted to share a couple of their questions with you, because you might be better able to answer than I am. So this question came from Jess on Mastodon. He wrote, I'm not an accountant, but how can any province claim the money that I've paid in? Alberta, I suppose, can leave the fund, but how can they take CPP funds from earners when doing so? That fund is owed to the payers, not to any province. So, Trevor and Lindsay, what do you th say to Jess's question? I think that's the right response to the 53% number. Absolutely. And so maybe I'll, I'll step back and, and clarify what the language in the act says around asset split. It says, take all the contributions historically that were made from payers in the separating province, add to that a fraction of the investment returns that are derived from those contributions, and then subtract the benefit payments that have gone out historically. And the, the intent was really to return to the province things that it had paid in to the CPP fund, um, adjusted for the individual contributions and the obligations that it would take on and stuff. So the, the, the intent was not to take more of the CPP assets than were actually required to make good on the obligations of those retirees in the separating province and, and not to have the separating province take more from the fund than what it had, quote, put in. Uh, and we only get this kind of really out there number from LifeWorks by applying uh, a particular interpretation of that language to this much larger accumulated fund where the returns are not actually paid by any particular province. And so I think the, the underlying principle behind the asset split was always to ensure that if a province were to separate that the pension benefits of individuals in that province could be sustained, made good on. Transfer an amount of assets that is tied in some way to those future obligations. That's indeed the language that we see in the federal government's white paper. And, and no more, right? Because then anymore, you're going to be jeopardizing a lot of the ability to sustain pension benefits elsewhere. And, and conveniently, that kind of lands on the 20% give or take, uh, estimate that I think a more reasonable interpretation of the act itself suggests. So if what we have in mind is, if you want to separate, okay, then your fair share of assets is in some way ought to be connected to the benefits that your separate plan will pay, not something that takes assets that other Canadians elsewhere are relying on to help ensure their benefits can be provided. 
Right. And I suppose somebody out there might say, well, 20% seems high for a province. It's 11% of the population, but that's, ah. we, we have a young workforce and, and we make money. <laughs> and Quebec is not in the CPP. And so we're a higher share of the oh, Canada, of course. excluding Quebec population. See, I told you I hadn't done math since grade 12. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Lindsay, I'm going to pose to you the question that came from Stephen Harding via Facebook, uh, who had a lot of concerns about the portability of this proposed new pension. And, and his question starts with, I guess, the question that is at the heart of this whole podcast series. Quote, what is an Albertan? If I leave Alberta, do I become a Manitoban or a British Columbian, or am I forever an Albertan? What if I started my working life in British Columbia, moved to Alberta, and then moved back to BC? Is my official province of residence the place I was, am living on the day the Alberta pension plan officially begins? So speaking as somebody who's lived in almost every province in Canada, I <laughs> appreciate that question. So what what would end up happening here is that the benefits that would get withdrawn would be based off of anybody who at any point in their working life had had pensionable earnings in Alberta. And that would be the calculation. So if you only lived here for a couple of years, it would be those couple of years of contributions that would get pulled out and you'd get put into an APP. It means people living in other parts of Canada right now who have paid in the past into CPP while working in Alberta, your contributions are getting pulled out. And it is still my fundamental um, position on this, that as a result, it's not an Alberta-only referendum, that we need to be talking to all our Canadian um, compatriots, and it should be a, a decision of all people who have paid in uh, while earning in Alberta. I was really struck, because LifeWorks also <laughs> says that People who live in Alberta who work for the federal government and people who work for federally regulated industries, so that's air, rail, radio, I mean, there, there are a bunch of them, I won't list them all, should be in the CP. And at this point, my eyes started to do funny things because I thought, well, how come, how can some Albertans be in the CPP and others in the hypothetical APP. Yeah, I'm not that, sure that's tenable because then then you could also argue that they shouldn't have to pay Alberta taxes. They're they're earning pensionable earnings in the province. Uh, there are employees within the province, and that it would I, I I just can't imagine a system where you could say that no, those employees don't have to. Then what about other ones, right? Like what's so uh, unique about that? And I remember my second point, which is about portability. That's the one you don't need to concern yourself too much with. And that is because, and I'm sure Trevor can go into more details, that there are, assuming that we can all act as adults, should this go forward, we will, we should <laughs> put in place agreements across the land that ensures portability. And Quebec has that, right? Quebec has that with the CPP. And the QPP, you can, you blend your benefits. And I, I have never heard of anybody who's gotten a blended benefit under that plan, even know what part is CPP and what part is QPP and all of this kind of stuff. So uh, if we are going to end up going down that path, portability, assuming our politicians can act reasonably, portability shouldn't be a concern. 
but it's an important question to ask the government what are what what agreements are you going to put in place and with who and then it's not even just across canada it's actually internationally we need to have what 60 70 different agreements with countries around the world uh to also ensure that one there's no double payment and two as well as understanding the recognition of of that income in a variety of different ways so that is much more complex than the agreement within Canada. Quickly on that point with Quebec, this is uh, something that is potentially at odds with one of the goals of the government of Alberta to increase benefits to Alberta recipients. So Quebec pension plan and Canada pension plan benefits are harmonized. And so there it's much easier to move from one to the other. It doesn't matter where you initiate your Uh, retirement benefits from because it's basically the same there as anywhere else. But if Alberta benefits are very different, then that might itself make it more complex to set up a similar agreement, could upset the equilibrium of the system in terms of where people move to claim where their retirement benefits uh, come from. And this is indeed why the Canada Pension Plan Act kind of requires a separating province set up a comparable plan. Unfortunately, it doesn't define what the word comparable means. And so that also leads many to uh, think that Alberta could easily set one up with higher benefits. But I think that would come with challenges related to the portability of those benefits. Well, and it seems to me that as I read the fine print of the LifeWorks report, that they say, when you set it up, it has to be comparable, but that there's nothing in the law that says you couldn't change it later to make it income. 100% 100% correct. And in, and just fun fact, I love reading my Hansard from the 1960s. And in the- in, <laughs> You're so no, cool. No joke. No joke. In the House of Commons debates, there were members of parliament at the time asking like, hey, wait, what if a province separates and it's comparable in the following year? They boost benefits, change contributions, do all this other stuff to make things more complex. And- Yeah, the minister responsible says, yeah, well, there's nothing constitutionally the feds can do to prevent that, except these agreements between the Canada Pension Plan and the separating province are not something that the rest of the country has to engage in. And so severing that link, making it really difficult to move in and out of a jurisdiction would be one stick that the federal government would have to disincentivize a province to make their separate plan no longer comparable. I would love to go on talking to you, but there's a whole other panel of you and other folks waiting for people to hear. So I want to thank you very much for coming back into our virtual studio. I'm going to suggest that perhaps at some point, as as the province grapples with this more deeply, we might want to try to do something live where people could ask questions in real time and see what we could do to cut through some of the disinformation and misinformation so that Albertans have the facts before they're asked to vote. And with that, here now is our full panel on the pros and cons of an Alberta pension plan, first released on February 27th, 2023, featuring Trevor and Lindsay, Leo De Beaver, Ricardo Acuna, and Deborah Yedlin. The Canada Pension Plan in many ways is the envy of the world. The $536 billion investment fund has had a 10-year net return of 10%. Despite all the volatility of world markets of late, that's a very enviable track record. And the CPP Investment Board is a major international player, with offices in London, Luxembourg, Mumbai, Hong Kong, New York, San Francisco, Sao Paulo, and Sydney. 
and with only 14% of its funds invested in Canada. Just this past November, the Office of the Chief Actuary gave the fund a thumbs up and estimated that by 2100, it would be worth $17 trillion. And yet, despite the success and solidity of the CPP, there's a strong political impetus in some quarters to pull Alberta out of the Canada Pension Plan entirely and to set up a new Alberta Pension Plan, one that Albertans would control and which would be invested to support Alberta's economy. But would that be a smart move for Alberta and for Confederation? To delve into those questions, I'm delighted to welcome to Alberta Unbound five experts, each with their own perspective. Trevor Toome is a professor of economics and public policy at the University of Calgary. Leo DeBeaver is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, and from 2008 to 2014, he was the CEO of AIMCO, the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, which runs Alberta's public pension funds. Deborah Yedlin is the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce and a former longtime business writer. Ricardo Acuna is the executive director of the Parkland Institute, a progressive think tank based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And Lindsay Tedds is a professor of economics at the University of Calgary with a particular focus on the design and implementation of fiscal and tax policy. Welcome one and all. Thank you for having us, Paula. Thank well, great to be thanks, here. Paula. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So Lindsay Tedds, let's start with you. How exactly does the CPP work? And how right. important is it as a kind of guaranteed basic income for retirees and people with disabilities in Canada? Well, you had to go to the basic income, didn't you? Okay. <laughs> That's your jam. So <laughs> That's my jam. Okay, I'll, I'll keep it very high level, not get too into the technical weeds, which we can get to more in this conversation is essentially you pay a percentage of your employment earnings. Your employer pays uh, a similar percentage. Those funds go to the Canada Pension Plan. They're invested. And when you turn 60 or 65, or if you get a disability, you can claim it earlier, but you get a guaranteed pension. There's a, there's a guaranteed floor that you can get. And then if your contributions and earnings are higher than that, it goes up to a maximum. Not sure if I remember what the maximum is right now, around 1200 a month. So it, it is in fact a guaranteed pension, but you have to have employment earnings and you have to pay into it in order to get that benefit. And how important is it as a backstop for seniors and for people with disabilities in this country? Well, the CPPD is is very important for people who have um, employment attachments to get a, a disability pension. Um, it, it's certainly better than going on to social assistance, which is really the only other option. But again, you have to have substantial employment ties, which a lot of people with severe disabilities don't have. Um, so it's a, it, it is a very important backstop um, for for lower income seniors, though, um, the better plans are the guaranteed income supplement, as opposed to the CPPD, because if they are in that very, very low income sort of category, they probably haven't had the 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 benefit of being paying paying into the pension plan. So it is a one of a suite of programs to help people as they move into retirement to make sure they're not living in poverty. Leo DeBeaver, in my introduction, I stressed the size and the scope of the fund. How important are factors such as size and diversity of investment to a successful, sustainable pension fund? Well, up to a point, size matters. And that size, in my mind, and I've looked at this a number of different ways, I passed about $250 billion. It doesn't really matter much anymore. 
because the markets that provided the advantage earlier on in the game in the 90s, for instance, when I was part of Ontario Teachers, uh, those things have become so market efficient that you don't really need more size. In fact, size at some point can become an, a problem in the sense that you start in, investing in such large quantities that you no longer look at smaller investments, which particularly in a sustainable technology environment are much more important than they were when we're still trying to index equities and bonds, which was the big move. So you know, from that standpoint, uh, I think uh, I don't have any problems with an Alberta plan, but if, if I were looking for structural change, I'm not sure that's the place I would be looking for it. And of course, this is a political issue, whether you like it or not. And unfortunately, I can talk about the merits doing it from a technical point of view, but the underlying objective is that in, in Alberta, people feel that Toronto and Montreal maybe see themselves as the, the financial capitals of this country. And in some sense, they want a piece of the action. That's really what's underlying this. All right. So that's a nice segue to my question for Trevor Toome. There are advocates of an Alberta pension plan who say that the CPP is unfair to Albertans because we pay in more than we get back. How valid is that argument? Is the CPP really unfair to Albertans or is there something else demographic going on here about the, the age of our working population? Well, that, that's a great question and really does underline what the recent Fair Deal panel in Alberta flagged as one of its concerns around the Canada Pension Plan arrangement as a whole. It's certainly the case that Alberta is a, a relatively younger province uh, than others. And so mechanically, that's going to mean that a larger fraction of our population is employed and paying CPP contributions and a smaller fraction is uh, retired and therefore uh, less is being paid to Alberta residents. And, and that fair deal panel kind of put its number or put its finger on a number of about $3 billion per year. And mechanically speaking, that's certainly what Statistics Canada shows is the difference between inflows and outflows. But I think that does miss some important subtleties. I think first and, and primarily, we have a, a negative net migration among older individuals out of Alberta. Uh, so over many, many years uh, into 50, those in their 50s and 60s tend to leave, potentially retiring elsewhere. And so when I we mean, measure I mean, what these we mean, flows- we, What we mean by negative net migration is people move to Victoria. <laughs> or Kelowna or, or yeah, wherever. Yeah. And that means that when we when we track or when stats can tracks uh, where these flows go, some of the <clears throat> benefits that are being received by individuals in BC will be counted as flows into BC, even though those were individuals who spent the bulk of their working years in Alberta. So, so it is really difficult to pin down precisely what the gap is between contributions and benefit flows. Um, but, but just generically speaking, demographics uh, in Alberta are on the younger side, and, and that's going to lead to something like an Alberta pension plan potentially having a, a lower contribution rate than the Canada pension plan uh, does. And so what exactly that uh, contribution rate would be is subject to a great deal of uncertainty. And there's various estimates that are that are out there. But I think a reasonable estimate would be somewhere between one to maybe one and a half points less than what the Canada pension plan is. Uh, but of course, then there's risks. You know what happens in the future with migration flows changing? Because uh, we have to think very long term when we think about pension plans. An 18-year-old today in Alberta, are, they're going to start collecting uh, CPP around 2070, and they're going to need to count on it existing into the 2080s and 2090s. And one out of seven 
of those people graduating high school today will live to see the 22nd century. So these are really big, critically important policy issues. And we do have to have that long-term perspective in mind. And so while demographics are favorable today, that's certainly no guarantee that it will be in the future. Deborah Yedlin, one of the benefits of the Canada Pension Plan is its portability. Your pension follows you even if you live in Newfoundland and work in Wood Buffalo, even if you spend your career in Edmonton and retire to Comox. But for Alberta businesses looking to recruit during times of labor shortage, how important is that portability? And would there be a challenge, do you think, if we had an Alberta pension plan? Absolutely. I think that's that's something that's so critical right now. We've been dealing with a labor shortage for quite a while. We've just recently turned around in terms of migration into the province. But the portability of the pension plan is absolutely critical. And not having that portability could very much compromise our ability to attract that labor and that talent into Alberta. And Canadians would look at, you know, do I do I lose access to CPP if I move to Alberta? And from a risk standpoint, of course, if it's an Alberta-only plan, you know, there's economic and, and uh, demographic risks that Trevor alluded to. The other thing to think about as well is that, you know, we, we did a, uh, a poll in, in December of 2020, and the Alberta Chambers of Commerce found that a majority of the respondents believe that withdrawing would disadvantage their companies over the next three to five years. And just think about it from an administrative standpoint. There are administrative costs associated with, with this. And if you're a company that has uh, operations in across the country, you know, to have to add one more burden from an administrative standpoint to your operations if you're in Alberta or somewhere, you know, it just is something that companies would rather not have to deal with. So there's the portability issue, there's the administrative issue. And what we want to do is make sure that we have one of the things actually that we do talk about endlessly in Canada is the lack of labor mobility. And if we could do that better, we could actually deal with some of the, the labor challenges that we have across the country. We already don't have that where we need it to be. This would not be helpful in that context. And that certainly would hurt Alberta. And I hadn't even thought about the paperwork side of things. Because yes, I mean, if you're a company, you know, if you're a, a big construction company based in Edmonton or Calgary, and you have offices other places, that's a challenge. It's also mm-hmm. a challenge if you're a multinational that wants to open in Alberta, you might not maybe want to come into this market if it's that. And, you know, Paula, from that perspective, I just want to add, we are a province that has benefited greatly from the inflow of foreign capital. That is really what's helped support the growth of our energy sector and other and attracted other energy uh, other industries to to Alberta. If this is a factor that they have to consider, it's one more thing that they may think about in term if 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 the resources in Alberta and this is where they have to be, it's one conversation. If they have other options, they will look at those other options. We know that capital goes to where it can get the best return with the least amount of resistance. And if there's more friction, transactional friction, I call it in Alberta, companies will go somewhere else. So, Ricardo, Deborah Yedlin said, you know, polls of, of chambers of commerce showed people were pretty lukewarm on this idea. And I think polling suggests that most Albertans in general don't actually favor pulling out of the CPP. And yet it's still a very hot political idea in some quarters right now and very possibly an election issue as we go into the spring election. So why do you think the idea has such an attraction for its champions? This is this is one of those ideas that that comes about of this long Alberta tradition of when when times are tough politically for the governing party or, or people trying to form government in Alberta, it becomes uh, an almost knee-jerk reaction these days to start finding a way to push back 
to demonize the federal government, to demonize the Confederation. And, you know, the, the first mentions of, of an Alberta pension plan start coming about years ago with the launch of, of a firewall letter to talk about that ways ways in which Alberta could assert its independence, its sovereignty from the rest of Canada. We saw growth in that idea. The report uh, a while ago from, from the Fraser Institute kind of broke down in the way that, that Professor Toome has has kind of with the, you know, failed nuances that Professor Toome has highlighted, why Alberta needs to pull out of the pension plan. And then we saw a recent uptake from that uh, with the last government and, and again, um, with the current premier from a group calling itself the Free Alberta Strategy that's kind of reissued these ideas of, of Alberta sovereignty and asserting kind of Alberta's rights against the Federation. And and the Free Alberta Strategy is now um, has direct representation in the premier's office. So these ideas are getting a hearing and getting promoted. And, and I think it's still seen as a way of rallying a certain segment of Alberta's population and rallying a certain idea that has always been politically popular in Alberta, that we're somehow getting screwed uh, by the federal government, we're getting screwed by Ottawa, and we're not getting our fair share. So I think that's why this, it still has political legs. I want to ask Professor Toome and Dr. DeBeaver, if we did set up an Alberta pension plan, how would it have to work in order to succeed? I mean, what would be the you know the, the winning conditions, I guess, to make a pension plan that was actually functional? Well, I guess I can't speak to the the mechanics of operating the plan itself. I'll leave that to Dr. DeBeaver. But at a, at a high level, it would uh, work by thinking about what is the contribution rate that would sustain over some time horizon uh, sufficient contributions to the plan to pay out whatever benefits people are entitled to. So I mentioned that you know, favorable demographics now might lead to a slightly lower contribution rate than what we see nationally, so maybe some, some context there. The, the Canada Pension Plan currently, if we think just about the base, the core, not the not the new addition that's being currently phased in, that has right now a minimum contribution rate, they estimate about 9.5%, a little bit of a cushion below the 9.9 that we actually pay into the fund in Alberta, depending on your estimates, um, maybe somewhere around eight. It's pretty sensitive to a couple uh, a couple assumptions there, but if net migration falls, say, from its current level of roughly net 1% of the population per year, just fall to what Ontario sees and what we see nationally of about 0.6, then you get a contribution rate that's now uh, about 9%. So big chunk of the gap between you know, what Alberta would be if everything continues in, in the province's favor for decades to come is eliminated once we just have more normal migration rates. So in order for it to work over the long haul, we would need to continue to have favorable demographics. Otherwise, most of the, the economic merit quickly evaporates. And I think because it's, it's worth considering that you know Quebec used to be younger than average, yes. and now it is not. And now its contribution rate is higher than average. So there's a good deal of, of risk uh, there. But I guess to the mechanics, I'll, I'll turn it over to, to Dr. DeBeaver. You know, Deborah talked about how, from a Chamber of Commerce point of view, this is not particularly attractive because of extra administrative cost. But there's another aspect to it that's even worse, and that is you have to set up the administration of the pensions. And um, I don't know what it's like in Quebec, but my, my suspicion is that that may obliterate much of the lower contribution rate that, that you would have if you were to set it up. So I think it would be better if this is sort of a, a trump card in, in an interprovincial or federal provincial 
debate over who does what in this country. This is probably not the best card you can play. I understand politically why you do it, but I'd rather do something that in the end benefits all of us, including the feds, rather than something that probably has a negligible net effect, a net beneficial effect for the province for all the reasons we talked about. The fact that we're a small province and that the mobility factor goes out the door and that changing conditions could take an advantage, a demographic advantage, and turn it into a handicap. We don't know. I mean, one of the strengths that I would argue of the CPP is that it has a completely independent board. So, you know, no prime minister can interfere with its investment decisions. And it's harder to change that governance structure than to amend the Constitution or fix the Senate. It requires the consent of two thirds of provinces representing two thirds of Canada's population. So it's much tougher to manipulate, you know, the investments for some kind of political gain. Can I take that? Because I had to deal with that when we started AIMCO. So so, so tell tell me more. Okay. When, When Ontario Teachers was established, it probably got the best legislation in the country to create independence between investment decisions and politics. And it really never has been an issue. In Alberta, the legislation, for reasons that I won't get into, wasn't quite as good, but it worked reasonably well. And the main reason it worked well is that the board was uh, very adamant that politics shouldn't get into it. Now, for something like the Heritage Fund, the government sets the asset mix, so that's that's okay, right? But you wouldn't want the pension plan to be subject to those kinds of uh, changes. So, But that's not the main thing I would worry about. In other words, you can safeguard that uh, with uh, the kind of legislation that we've had in place for AIMCO overall. And you could make it very specific for the um, for the pension plan. So that's that's not the big issue. Can I just add to that, Paula? Um, when uh, AIMCO was established and the legislation was established, and the board initially included a member of uh, the deputy finance minister, actually, and I wrote a column saying, "Uh-uh, if this is truly going to be arm's length, the deputy minister has to come off that board." And to its credit, the government listened and the individual was removed and and there's never been government representation since. But I very clearly remember that. And so this would be the governance structure. I mean, when you look at Ontario teachers, but you also look at CPPIB, that governance structure is very solid and very arm's length. And it would be absolutely critical if if this was a direction the province was going to take to make sure that the same thing applied. And that would be... You know, that's that's not negotiable as far as I'm concerned. And it wouldn't be negotiable for any almost Albertans either. But that is the question. I mean, Ricardo, given Alberta's political culture, how hard do you think it would be for Alberta premiers to resist the temptation to micromanage the fund? I mean, indeed, I think some of them have been on the record saying that that is their intention up front. I think that's that's one of the big concerns, right, is that is that we have heard these musings. And again, there is no no formal legislative proposal on the table for this as of yet. So. We don't know what it might look like, but we have heard musings um, from from leaders in government and, and folks who, who have government's ear that this would be also a good way to invest money in Alberta's resources and Alberta's resource industry to grow the economy, to diversify the economy. And I think as soon as you start musing about those sorts of things, you get into the kind of potential problems of any kind of government interference, right? Even if that's just written as a basic goal of this move of the pension plan, I think it's problematic because it's already providing some direction to how funds will be invested. And 
And I think that that risks having an independent the, the an independent investment strategy, which we know is critical for, for this type of plan. So, Deborah, I want to come back to you. I mean, you were before you were the head of the Chamber of Commerce, you were for years, I mean, I can say this, Canada's premier energy writer. You know, so so what are the risks? I mean, because I, I have heard politicians saying that the money should specifically be used to invest in Alberta's oil and, and resource industries. So, you know, what is the risk of treating a pension fund like a VENCAP fund in that way? Yeah, or a piggy bank. Uh, I think, you know, the and Leo knows this better than I do really what you want is a broadening of risk to make sure that you can generate the returns that you need for the population that Trevor was talking about to 2070 and to have it focused on an industry and be supporting an, a specific industry is something that I uh, does not make sense in a, in a broader context. Does it make sense to have a part of AIMCO heritage fund, whatever, as a, as a venture sliver? Maybe, but I think you can't to have a pension fund that is exclusively to support local industry. There are many other ways to do that. And part of that is making sure that you have an attractive jurisdiction for companies to come and invest in and sort of enhance the tax base in that in that way. This would also be seen as government picking winners and losers. We never want to see that. And it would also not be seen as a level playing field for other companies and industries that may be looking to come to Alberta. So you know, on so many levels, it would distort the market. And that is absolutely what we would not want to see. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to maybe chime in with um, some context about how important the rate of return is on these investments to the sustainability of of the fund. So the, the actuarial reports that look at this for the Canada Pension Plan show that every 0.1% change in average annual returns affects the required contribution rate by just a little bit over 0.1 percentage points. So if if the rate of return changes by a half a point, then you have to increase that contribution rate by a half a percent. And so again, in, in the Alberta context, putting aside even the demographic risks, if there's lower rates of return because of potential interference with the fund, then that itself would take away a big chunk of the difference between what the Canada pension plan minimum contribution rate is and what the Alberta uh, pension plan is. So demographics and investment returns are, are the two most important things by far for sustainability of these plans. Lindsay Ted's in our confederation, our various income support and pension plans are a mix of federal and provincial instruments. And like everything else in our confederation that presents challenges. So what would be the impact on our constellation of federal programs if Alberta pulled out of the CPP? What kind of shockwave might that send? Boy, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure in other provinces that there would be much of a shockwave. I mean, I think the shockwave is um, mostly felt by, well, employees like me. I already have five pensions. (laughs) I'm a rolling stone, by the way. And to then then take away that one stability that I have, which is the CPP, really, really changes actually my um, my retirement calculations. And, and that's serious and significant. When we think about this program and, and how it affects, you know, more our, 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 our suite of programs that exist 
across Canada. Most of the people paying into the Canada Pension Plan are most likely not going to end up on some of those provincial programs like income assistance because they have a substantial tie to to the labor force. And so I'm not sure there's any real, real impact in that way. I think the impact is felt by the individuals and how that affects their their suite of of programs, how how mobile they are, and uh, and how all of these changes then affect the retirement profile. And I, you know, some of the things that that Trevor has raised here particularly are quite concerning because I'm, you know, 15 years away from retirement, big change to my base level pension plans has a substantial impact because I don't have enough time to adjust my investment profile to to account for that. So to me, the big shockwave is on uh, a mobile labor market. But don't you think there's a challenge? I mean, if if Alberta, one of the most affluent provinces, pulls out of the CPP, it leaves a hole in the CPP. And it also means, I mean, does then Saskatchewan decide it wants its own pension plan? Does, you know, does BC want its own pension plan? I just really worry about, you know, if you if you pull out one beam from the pile, does that does that send a, a shiver through the whole structure? Well, I think it a lot depends on how, like one of the things that we haven't talked about is if Alberta pulls out of the Alberta pension plan, do they get a lump sum payment out of the existing pool that goes into their plan? How is all that going to work? No, nobody knows um, what what this would be. And I have to admit, I think there'd be a lot of people who've paid into CPP who would not be very happy about their earnings being pulled out. Um, so I think that would affect how other um, provinces respond. I can't imagine Saskatchewan and Manitoba um, thinking this would be a benefit for them. They're incredibly small provinces with, an, with a much older population. And, and so I just don't see that calculus being the same way. And, you know, the politics in BC, I mean, BC politics has always been a bit odd. I've never heard this talked about. I lived there for for 11 years. I've never heard this one come up. I've heard a bridge a bridge to the mainland more than <laughs> any, anything like this. And I think with the ferry backups, that would still be um, a, a big issue there. So I I just uh, that shock wave. Um, I really depends on the particulars of how uh, Alberta would pull out. I think one of the things that gets lost when when we hear talk about how, you know, Alberta gets treated unfairly by the Canada Pension Plan or how it's disproportionate what we pay in to what we get out. I think one of the things that gets lost, particularly with regard to CPP, is this idea that everybody in Alberta as an individual is treated exactly the same by CPP as everybody else across the country, right? In fact, because Alberta tends to have higher wages, than folks across the country. Albertans are actually getting more money uh, or people who've worked in Alberta are getting more money from CPP than folks in the rest of the country. And I think that reality gets blurred when we start talking about Alberta's putting more money in than we're getting out. And it it can sometimes confuse folks, I think, about what exactly this all means. That's such a critical point because it, we hear this a lot in conversations around equalization or fiscal transfers where you have several uniform national programs that are redistributive just because the composition of provincial populations are different, right? Federal old age security is mechanically going to pay out more to provinces that have more eligible elderly individuals. And, and so there's, 
you know, between province financial redistributions going on, but at the individual level, it's it's similar treatment between people regardless of which province they they live in. So CPP is redistributive uh, across the population, mainly from young to old, in particular those who retired early on in the plan's existence. It's not set up in a way that biases Alberta residents compared to a similar individual who lives elsewhere. I was going to ask this question of Ricardo, but perhaps the others of you would like to jump in too. Is this a serious public policy option for Alberta, or is this just kind of a threat, a game of chicken, something various progressive conservative and united conservative governments have played around with but don't actually intend to do? The, the history here is is interesting. You can kind of trace these calls back for an Alberta pension plan to, to at least 1982 with the Western Canada Concept Party. They kind of ran on it in that election explicitly as part of um, they had a, a kind of a separatist uh, agenda that they were putting forward. Um, but then it comes back, social credit brings it up as well. And in the time when we reformed CPP in 1997, this is a really interesting example of the, the PC government here at the time under Ralph Klein and the federal liberal government under Gretchen and Finance Minister Paul Martin really agreeing that the, the CPP at the time was not sustainable, so they needed yeah. to enact changes those changes were difficult. They involved some benefit reductions. They involved increases in the contribution rate, lots of compromise across uh, various levels of government of different parties, but they uh, they did agree to it. And, and Klein in the 97 election was you know, quite clear that they agreed to those changes because reform was inevitable and they wanted to preserve the CPP. But it was those increases in contribution rates in the 90s that really sparked the rising opposition uh, that uh, Ricardo alluded to earlier among some members of that party, because it was this, it was seen as a tax increase, uh, was seen as unfair to Alberta. So it's kind of ironic that it was uh, an agreement reached across party lines to ensure the long run viability of the CPP that kind of sparked the, the flame of opposition to it that we still have today. Anybody else want to jump in? Well, I, I go back to, you know, can I just add, I mean, Peter Law, he'd often always said he was a Canadian before he was an Albertan. And the whole idea was, how do you make sure that we sustain our federal institutions, the benefit of everybody in the country, not just think about Alberta's interests. And I just keep going back to what he would have uh, supported and the vision behind, you know, the Heritage Fund to begin with. And I think, if anything, we have that as as a vehicle that needs to be augmented, obviously, because it really hasn't been fed into for quite a while. But I think, you know, if Alberta wants to look at its sustainability and, and, a, and an advantage from a different standpoint, I would argue it's better to look at the Heritage Fund and see what that looks like, rather than go in the direction of pulling out of the CPP because of political um, desires. Is there a danger that even by having these conversations, I don't mean our conversation, our conversation is of course a very important one, but when politicians who are not senators indulge in these conversations, these threats to pull out of the CPP, does that already scare away some companies and investors? Businesses don't like uncertainty and anything that causes an element of uncertainty is something that they will pause in terms of where they're going to choose to risk their capital. If there's uncertainty, it means risk premiums go up, it means their returns change, it means their access to capital is different, could mean their cost of capital is higher. 
and they're going to look for other places to uh, to invest. Again, that means that assumes that you're not investing in a resource that is actually you know based in, in the province. People have options today that they never had before. We have a mobile workforce. We have mobile you know, capital is more mobile than any, ever before, and we can work wherever we want as long as we're willing to be part of a time zone. So the whole landscape for labor has changed dramatically. And that's why we really have to think deliberately about what we do to make sure that we have a competitive advantage in the province that attracts people and capital and not uh, gives a reason for individuals and companies to look elsewhere. You're five very smart people. If you were advising the Alberta government and the people of Alberta, is it worth the risk to pull out of the CPP and set up a made in Alberta, run in Alberta pension plan? I want to start with Leah De Beaver first. I see it as a, again, a trump card in a political game. And uh, unfortunately, polarization in politics is probably making this more of an issue than it is. Like Deborah talked about, anything that creates uncertainty is a problem. Well, that's true, but there are so many other uh, sources of uncertainty that we should be addressed before we get off track on this one. So I don't know. I, I'm not sure that people take this seriously. I lived for 25, 30 years in Eastern Canada and saw how uh, what the perspective was in Western Canada, and now I see it from the other side. I mean, I see some legitimate things that need to change to give Alberta a fair shake, whatever you want to call it. But I wouldn't really think that this is the uh, the best tool to use right now to uh, make that point. Trevor Tim. Yeah, I think this is one of these policy areas where it's interesting as as an academic to, to think about because there's legitimate arguments on, on both sides. The favorable demographics does mean the, the contribution rate here might be lower the benefits higher. I, I kind of personally look at it though as as something where it comes with a great deal of risk that I wouldn't personally favor, just the demographic risks alone, the investment uh, return risk that we'd have here as well. Plus the, the nature of it is so polarizing. It's clearly used as a way to, I guess, kind of signal partisan loyalty in some quarters. And so I, so I agree with Leo that it's, it's not itself a policy that I see as taken all that seriously by the by the government it's it's a technical question and yet it's never engaged with in a technical way it's always you know framed as you know something that's obviously unfair to alberta where the government could if they wanted to you know, put together some analysis put it out there have a conversation about the pros and cons and the trade-offs involved but because they don't i think it's it's just one of these issues that's used purely as a political communications tool um, myself, but it is kind of fun to think about because um, it does have all these moving parts. I like thinking about these long-term uh, public finance projections, so I like it as an issue, uh, but not as not as a, an actual practical policy choice that the province should adopt. Lindsay Tetz, I, I, I love Trevor. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I'll I'll pick up on his point because it was what I was going to say. You only ever hear this come up as a political argument. It's never an economic argument. It's never sound policy. It's always a political argument to, to, to screw over Ottawa. And I fundamentally don't see how this um, causes a, a real negative impact um, to the federal government or, or to Ottawa. And they're playing around 
with people's futures. And as I say, the older you are, um, I'm not necessarily the oldest person here, but um, I'm, I'm right up there. And to think about the uh, what this does to an individual's uh, retirement plan when you're well into retirement planning is highly problematic and would in fact affect the ability to attract labor here, particularly highly skilled labor who thinks about these things um, a great deal. And, you know, if I was sitting in Edmonton, sorry, I almost said Ottawa. <laughs> if I was sitting in Edmonton, I, I'd just be like, I have no idea why we're talking about this. This is absolutely ridiculous. And there is no economic merit here. There's too much risk and there's too much issues um, with businesses and individuals for this to be a, a serious policy matter. Ricardo Aquino. I mean, I would agree completely. I think with with uh, everything we've heard, even just in this conversation, it's risky, it's unnecessary, it's it's problematic. it's it's built on a on a flawed mathematical justification and rationale. Uh, I think the the interesting thing for me as a as a policy and politics observer, is that it was in the mandate letter for the Minister of Finance to do more studies. And I think it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out, whether whether the government goes, Ralph Klein was always very good at floating trial balloons, seeing what the feedback would be, and then making a big show of saying, Albertans don't want this, or I'm going to need to adjust this, and then pulling back on the policy. And the Minister of Finance is going to report on the possibility of an Alberta pension plan, and it'll be interesting to see what the government does with it. If they have that same ability to to ebb and flow and go and go with with what they're seeing from the public or if they push through i think it'll be very telling of, of where this government is headed and deborah yeltham i'll give you the final word to you well i think like so many policy issues there's a very simplistic lens that's being taken to this and it's not a simple uh, issue there's no simple solution from so many uh, angles that we've talked about whether it's the portability the ability to attract attract labor where it would actually frustrate labor mobility across the country and again, you know, when we look, we look at Canada as a small player in the global context from a capital market standpoint, Alberta is even smaller. So that means returns are out of, really out of our control. We don't have control over demographics. And so it's a costly undertaking. It has wide ranging impact. And from so many levels, it is not something that is a practical avenue for the government, any government to really look at in a serious way, because it compromises, it puts too many things at risk, whether it's retirees, whether it's attracting labor, you know, and and potentially how is it how it's governed, and what that means uh, from an investment standpoint. So, you know, we obviously are not uh, supporting this idea, because we just think it's not the right thing to do for the province, and uh, from a business standpoint. Just in case you came in halfway through, let me tell you who our fabulous guests have been. Lindsay Teds and Trevor Toome are professors of economics at the University of Calgary. Ricardo Acuna is the executive director of the Parkland Institute. Deborah Yedlin is president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. And Leo DeBeaver is a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and the former head of AIMCO. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, independent Alberta Senator Paula Simons. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't be shy to share a link or leave a review. You can subscribe to get our regular monthly episodes, and you can explore our back catalogue of conversations with remarkable Albertans wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, merci, and hi hi.